Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Before we get to today's show, a quick reminder that this podcast is free for everyone and supported by those who can afford it. So uh, if you have found this podcast a useful companion during 2020, and you'd like to see it continue through 2021, I would invite you to go to plantyourself.com slash gift. If you are in a position where you have the means to support something that means something to you and hopefully uh, you think is doing good in the world. You can use PayPal or Patreon. You can make a one-time contribution or become an ongoing sustaining patron of the show. And if funds are too tight for you to show your appreciation in a monetary sense, you can still leave a review of the Plant Yourself podcast on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. That also helps us a great deal. All right, on to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. True confession, I usually multitask while I eat, despite telling other people not to. I read, I Facebook, I talk on the phone, I create presentations, and so on. And I rationalize it really well. I'm busy. I can still chew slowly. Note to self, BS. And this is the last time. And luckily, I tell myself it's not really a big deal. Today's guest, Mark Schoen, who is assistant clinical professor of medicine at UCLA's Geffen School, disagrees. And after reading his absolutely amazingly important and helpful book, Your Survival Instinct is Killing You, he's convinced me. So Dr. Schoen is a pioneer in mind-body medicine, and he researched and developed breathing techniques because he wasn't allowed to bring hypnosis into the hospital where he started practicing in the 1980s. And he's spent his life exploring stress, pressure, performance, and here's where I get very interested, maladaptive habits. So he argues that we have become victims of our own survival instincts, that fight or flight response that allowed our ancestors to become instantly aroused by danger and respond to it effectively, combined with a modern lifestyle in which even the possibility of discomfort is interpreted as an enemy spear slicing through the air in our direction. In other words, good luck talking sense to your overeating self when it interprets hunger as an immediate threat to existence. You can keep all this stuff out of your pantry, but when the alarms go off and you think your life is about to end, you'll do just about anything to get a hit of donut or pizza or burger. And so the short answer is to become comfortable with discomfort. And we're going to talk about that in this podcast. And so without further ado, Dr. Mark Schoen, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Yes, thank you. Very happy to be here. So I was turned on to your work by my martial arts instructor, uh, Glenn Murphy, who's also a, a science writer. And the reason he wanted me to read it was he's encouraging me to be more uncomfortable in my life, to, to embrace discomfort. Um, and so when I, I got your book, and you know, the title is Your Survival Instinct is Killing You, and it, it really changed the way I look at stress, and it changed the way I look at almost every health intervention that I want to bring about. So let's start with just this provocative title. What is our survival instinct? Our survival instinct is this ancient wiring that was meant to keep us out of danger, or said differently, to keep us safe. It's a very black and white instinct. And it's a part of us that learn very early in our 
humanoid experience that if we could avoid discomfort, then we had a greater chance of surviving. So this instinct, which is housed in this very old part of the brain called the limbic systems, I call it the limbic brain for short, this part developed so that it could monitor our environment. And any time it sensed danger, whether it was a uh, saber-toothed tiger attacking us or we're hungry or someone's throwing a spear at us, it instantly engages. And what it engages is what everyone knows as the fight-or-flight response. And so at one time, there was genuine physical danger. And we had to respond to it. And those that responded well to the instinct survived. And those that maybe didn't have such a prominent survival instinct never survived. And therefore, the ones that survived were the ones that uh, propagated and then were the product of those that had a strong fear or survival instinct. Okay. So help help me draw the, the to, to translate this you know fight or flight. I get the the spear. I get the saber tooth tiger. I even get you know the um, you know start potential for starvation. But how does that translate into going into full fight or flight with discomfort, with feeling a little cold, with being bored? You know, how, how, it it seems like that's a pretty maladaptive way to go. Well, you know, it is in today's world, but you can see in, in prehistoric times, the discomforts we had were generally genuine physical threat. Nowadays, our discomfort is being basically set off by like what you're talking about, you know, being stuck in traffic late for a meeting, uh, forgetting our cell phone or someone being insensitive or cutting, cutting in front of us in line. And so what's happened is this old instinct that is wired to feel discomfort is now going off, well, this is an exaggeration, but almost like 24-7. So now, going back to this issue of discomfort, here's how this survival instinct works. It is monitoring the discomfort in the body. And if you think about us having this certain threshold, and when the discomfort goes beyond that threshold, almost like a high bar, it triggers the survival instinct. And sadly, in today's times, that high bar or threshold is sadly very low. So discomfort is then hitting this low high bar, and then the survival instinct is going off far more than it really needs to go off. So from an evolutionary perspective, we want to you know, thank our survival instinct for bringing us to this point. Basically, the, the, we were the ones who ran away first, right? Who, who had the, yeah. le the least tolerance for, oh, that saber-toothed tiger is so pretty. Look at it running, right? The, the, those of us who are here now are, are heirs to the, 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 the gene that said, run away sooner than you think. Yeah, well, you know, well put. And so the very instinct that helped us survive in, in prehistoric times is the very instinct now that is damaging our survival chances. Okay, so on, on page 44 of, of the paperback, you have a list of, 
you know, a checklist, you can, questions you can ask yourself to say, you know, are, are you suffering from what you call adjutants, which we'll, we'll talk about and you'll define in a little bit, I hope. But when I was looking at the questions, sort of five of those 32 questions involve things that are, that are new, you know, sort of email, uh, cell phone, text messages. The rest are like, you know, sleeping, television, hurrying, waiting in line. And you, you, when you talked at Google, you talked about how you see things now that you didn't see 30 years ago. So what's changed over the last 30 years that, that makes this so much more of a problem than it used to be? Well, I believe that this discomfort that we're feeling, the fact that we are having so much discomfort, which really isn't warranted, at least from traditional times, is being fueled by our response to the world in, in these ways. I believe that technology has dramatically changed our level of discomfort in the world. And and I peg it going all the way back to the microwave and fast food, where before these things existed, most of us had to basically be hungry. And you, I remember asking my mom, Mom, I'm so hungry. When is dinner? It, it's going to be an hour. Just go outside. Do something. Distract yourself. So we had to wait when we were uncomfortable. But then as these things such as fast food and microwave came into existence, all of a sudden, we didn't have to wait. We could have food instantly. And I believe as technology has developed, then came the fax machine. And all of a sudden, where it once took two weeks to get a response, we could get a response in, in a minute. And this has led us to be much more impatient. It's also made us need instant gratification, that we need information, we need a response right away. We're just not willing to wait very long for an answer or to deal with being uncertain. Uh, and then, then on top of that, this technology has made us demand more perfection in the world. We don't tolerate imperfection not only in the world itself, but not with our partners. And these things raise the level of what I call adjuvants. It's just like, you know, our, our body temperature. You know, when we're good at 99, we're, our body temperature is 98.6. And, you know, we can handle 99, maybe 99.2. But when it gets over 100, we really start feeling uncomfortable. And when this heat in the body or adjutants starts getting to a certain level, that's when the discomfort goes up and hits that survival instinct. Hmm. So w when I was reading the book, I had to stop for about half an hour and just think when I reached one concept that completely floored me, which I think you refer to as the cozy paradox. Could you describe, yeah. could you describe that? Because that, that really blew my mind. The cozy paradox is basically this. We have developed all this technology to make us so much more comfortable in the world. But the ironic part of that is that 
now, because of all this technology, we become less and less tolerant of being uncomfortable. And that's the paradox. So, so, I mean, the, I don't know, the ramifications of that are just, are, are so amazing that the thing that we're chasing, we, we, you know, we, we have this survival instinct and it tells us to be comfortable and the more and more comfortable we get, you know, you say that the, this, this isn't necessarily 24 seven, but I think it kind of is if, if my, if my threshold is so fragile, I'm always worried about not meeting. It's like having a check, you know, like having a checking account with just a couple of bucks in it. That means every piece of mail that comes in, even if it's like a, you know, a solicitation from a magazine or a birthday card from a friend, everything represents, is that the bill that's going to put me in the red? Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful example. That's a, a terrific example. Exactly. Everything becomes a threat. And should being stuck in traffic or late for a meeting or someone hurt our feelings, should that really be a threat that keeps us up at night or we can't turn our mind off or our stomach starts to hurt or we get a headache or we start avoiding that person? Not really, but that's what it's become. Right. But, you know, for me, I, um, I don't think about being stuck in traffic as a threat. Like, I don't perceive that as a threat. I think, you know, when I blow my top, it's because, you know, at, at the moment, it feels like a very good reason. But then when I look back in remorse, I think, well, that situation put me over the edge. I don't attribute any of my problems to the fact that I'm worried about, you know, is my, sh is my shower going to be cold this morning because someone used all the hot water or did I, did I, was I stuck in traffic for five minutes or did I have to wait on hold or was somebody rude to me at the grocery store? But you're saying all, all those things are, are registered at, in our bodies as these low-grade threats? Yeah, well, well said. What happens is this limbic brain, particularly the, the fear center, which is the amygdala part of the brain, it is black and white. You're either safe or unsafe. Things such as stress and anxiety are secondary reactions to the fear response. So even though we may not outwardly, cognitively, logically experience something as a threat, we may just say, oh, this is uncomfortable, I don't like this, or you know, I don't want to do this anymore. But at their deeper levels, the more primitive part of the brain, it is basically just that. Is this safe? Or unsafe and that's what is triggering the fear response so yeah you know someone hurts our feelings like logically do we say is that really a threat to me no but the body the brain register it as a threat and there lies the the result of any kind of threat has the ability to trigger this very dangerous sort of biochemical reaction in the body that is harming us in so many dramatic ways. And one of the most potent ways is that it's leading to premature aging. How so? Well, what happens when this fear response goes off, and we know, people know, oh, adrenaline response goes in the body and so on. Well, what happens is that when this response goes off, the body needs, says, 
you know, learn through evolution. Well, wait, I got to prepare myself for battle, for danger. So it releases certain chemicals. One are these adrenal substances, but others are called cytokines. And cytokines are these proteins. And these proteins' goal is to mobilize the immune system because it doesn't know if there's going to be some kind of physical assault. So what it needs to do is beef up the defenses of the body, just like, okay, let's bring this whole marine squadron over here in case we are attacked that we can fight back. So it's building up our inner forces. But over time, the buildup of these forces chronically, rather than fighting a true external threat, it ultimately starts fighting us instead. It's just like if you had a squadron of Marines in, in the bleachers at a baseball game and they're all drinking, and ultimately what's going to be the result? There's going to be a fight. And that's what happens. These defenses turn against us and they start chewing away at the organs of the body and the organs that have been found through the data to be the most vulnerable the brain, the heart. And so over time, these things just start deteriorating. And there's more data from up in UC San Francisco to show that these, this, the result of this starts chewing away at the telomeres of the cells, which are these essentially these threads that uh, are part of cells. And every time they divide, this thread gets smaller and smaller until eventually it reaches a place where it's small. The body cannot renew itself. So this whole fear response and anger, hostility, start lowering the telomeres and our ability for the body to renew itself. That's mm -hmm. how it works. Uh, so that sounds like, you know, some, some of my work around um, nutrition, around autoimmune Right where the body attacks itself, and here here it's doing it on sort of an emotional level that translates into this this inflammation, this overactive immune response. So that that's, that the the system that's supposed to protect us against the outside world, it's like the, the Trojan horse gets in, it can't turn around. In fact, it's it's a, it's be, it becomes the enemy. Yeah, wonderfully stated. The very thing that was meant to protect us ultimately becomes the very thing that threatens us. So one of the areas that, that, that uh, really surprised me about where your book went, like, you know, the mechanisms are different, but still I thought I, under knew, I, I, thought I understood sort of stress and its ramifications, and yeah, that chronic stress can cause phys physiological problems when our bodies are constantly in fight or flight and they're not allowed to repair. But what, the area where you went that again, I'd never thought of before, is around how this adjutants and, um, and, and stress response leads to bad habits and, and reinforces them to, to the point where they become debilitating. Can you talk about how that yeah. works? You know, a very interesting area has to do with how the fear response basically, it, through a series of processes, leads to habits and what I call like maladaptive habits, whether it's uh, addiction such as alcohol, food, or other habits, you know, such as panic attacks or withdrawal or 
chronic pain. And this is so powerful, and this is the way it works, is that when we feel this fear, and remember, fear goes off in the brain, even if logically it doesn't seem like fear. So when the fear goes off, what it does is lower the dopamine levels in the body. So this process of cortical releasing factor, it's a hormone that starts in the brain. And when this happens, we, we feel fear, this cortical releasing factor starts affecting other areas of the body. What it ultimately does is lower the dopamine. And as it lowers the dopamine levels, it creates more discomfort. And we don't want to be uncomfortable because it, it in itself makes us feel fearful. So then what we do, because remember, we're wired to avoid discomfort. That's what allowed us to survive. And so what we do is go to certain habits that we think or we just biologically feel lowers the discomfort level. And one of those things is food. We will want to eat because when we were a primitive being, obviously eating helped us survive. So we're wired to want to eat when we feel uncomfortable. So what happens is we start to eat. And the eat, eating initially raises the dopamine level. And then by doing that, we feel, we feel a sense of relief. But over time, we continue to need to eat, but the dopamine levels don't go as high as they did initially. So what happens is that the more we eat to try to satisfy and raise this dopamine level, the less effective it is so that after a while we're caught in this loop of feeling uncomfortable. Okay, we have to eat to sort of assuage and mollify that discomfort, but it never lasts, and we get stuck in this very destructive loop that we can't stop. And even though logically we say, don't eat this chocolate donut, don't eat the, the french fries, it's overridden by this primitive mechanism that says you're uncomfortable, you're in danger, eat. And so the more we do this, the more our dopamine is pummeled to lower and lower levels. And what the data shows, those people that have chronic low dopamine levels are more prone to addictions, such as overeating or alcohol or uh, substance uh, dependence. That's how it happens. And, you know, we, we know that... Um that not all foods are created equal, right? That, that people who are, who are stressed out tend not to reach for the broccoli and cauliflower, right? But, but for the chocolate donut. Why is that? Well, in a, in a, again, we, as a primitive being, we were wired to eat and load up on carbs and fats because we never really knew when our next meal would happen. So we needed to store these fats and, and sugar levels because remember the brain and the body 
is fueled by the glycogen and the, and the sugar levels. So now when we're uncomfortable, it creates that sense of threat and fear. And our ancient wiring says, eat sugar, eat fats. And that's what happens. Yeah, so, so in reading that, what, what got to me was how, if that's true, how inadequate our models are of helping people change their bad habits and, and you know, bad habits in general, but specifically around over, overeating. So, we're, you know, so I teach people, well, change your environment. And I teach people cognitive techniques to prepare. I teach people to, to use social support. But if we're ignoring the survival instinct... In the, in the end, it's much stronger than all of that stuff, isn't it? Yes, it's like uh, the old axiom, if the, the logical mind is in disagreement with the emotional mind, which one wins? <laughs> right. You know, the, Usually the emotional brain wins, and, and that, of course, explains why we have constant wars and never seem to learn from it. And the same thing is true with with things like food or alcohol or drugs and other types of, or even sex, you know, we get stuck in this and we can try to logic, logicalize our way out of it, but it can fall on deaf ears. I, I believe that the real solution is this. If discomfort is inevitable, I mean, it's not going to go away. Technology is not going to go away nor are our demands and needs for you know, getting things done in a timely way and uh, the population explosion and competition, none of that stuff's going to go away. So the real, the real challenge here is not banishing discomfort by trying to be logical and talk ourselves out of things or distract ourselves. The real challenge is this, is training this ancient instinct that discomfort is not a threat. That's the key. I, I just had a thought, which is when I, when I work with, with clients and, and friends that I know who, you know, it's very hard for people to, to change their, their diets, to lose weight, you know, the, the, the numbers for, for people who are obese, who lose 25 pounds and keep it off is, is closer to zero than, than one. And the, the few people that I know who really, you know, who drop 300 pounds and, and keep it off, they tend to go into like extreme sports and, you know, like, like running ultras or, or doing CrossFit or, or things that, you know, that I always thought, well, that's about the burning the calories. But the, when you say that, it makes me think that, the, that their, their choice to engage in like benign masochism is what gives them the ability to, to change their diets. Do you think there's something to that? I think there's a lot to it, and it's a, it's a great example, is that I think as we build up our discomfort muscle, that it makes it possible so that the survival instinct is not controlling our lives. And so that if you learn that you can be uncomfortable and nothing bad is going to happen, then when you're hungry or craving carbohydrates, then you could say, hey, I can do this. This is not a threat. Nothing bad's going to happen just because I'm hungry. But as you know, we become trained that just the, the anticipation of being hungry 
makes a lot of people eat because it becomes scary. Like, and even though it makes no sense because there's certainly no paucity of food available to us, but this old ancient instinct says, oh, my gosh, I'm hungry. I'm feeling uncomfortable. Or what if I don't get to eat at 7 o'clock and I have to wait till 9 o'clock? I better do something about it now. So our tolerance for being uncomfortable weakens us essentially and makes us fall prey to the survival instinct and so you're right so these people that have learned to push themselves and be uncomfortable that's a, that's a, a great skill it really does build up that discomfort muscle wow I'm, I'm just imagining like this food gym where people are you know instead of the uh, the aerobics instructor you know yelling at them no pain no gain or you know or the, the zumba teacher that they're now sitting in front of a plate of food and they the coach is telling them you know don't eat yet don't eat yet well you know it, how i do this is i have people come into my office starving and they're so uncomfortable and some are really anxious and what I do is I take that uncomfortable feeling they ha they're having and make it so that old part of the brain no longer experiences it as a threat. It's basic. I, I use a form of hypnosis and classical conditioning. And by, it's like classical conditioning is based on old Pavlovian concepts that we just recondition the fear center so that when it feels uncomfortable, such as starving, that it says, oh, okay, you know, this is okay. Nothing bad's going to happen. And so the end result is they don't want to eat on it. Well, it's, you know, for, for, I hear you and I believe you, and yet some part of my brain is going, that can't work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like there's, I feel like this visceral distrust that, that, that my systems can, that my, that my wiring can be changed. Well, think about it this way. You know, have you ever gone someplace and eaten a meal and maybe got food poisoning or maybe, you know, had the flu? And how much did you want to eat that food again in the future? Oh, yeah. No, I can feel I can I can feel it rising up in my stomach now. The, uh, the thinking about it doesn't take long for us to get a conditioned response in relation to an experience. And so we can recondition that uncomfortable feeling to rather than it evoke the threat response, I can change it around and make it evoke a sense of calmness and safety. Wow. It's a condition. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so when I, when I think about the, the approaches that I've been taught and that I use, and I'm sure they're, they're good and they're worthwhile, but something like, you know, cognitive approaches, like you talk about lecturing the emotions, um, yeah, you, you can you can see how those those don't get to those don't get to the root of the matter if the body thinks it really is about to die. Exactly. There's a, an old study done by a man named Wang who um, looked at people who were overweight and he taught them all these sort of cognitive strategies to, to deal with eating, you know, and he attached these folks to a functional MRI and wanted to see what would happen when he put in front of them a very tempting carbohydrate. I'm not sure if it was a dessert or just some type of carbohydrate. And he told them to use their cognitive strategies 
to essentially try to talk themselves out of wanting this food. <clears throat> and what he noticed is that when he hooked up the brain, he saw the frontal lobe, which is the more logical, executive part of the brain, you know, active. But then he saw the pleasure center, the nucleus accumbens, just going crazy. <clears throat> so here we are trying to talk ourselves into something, but that pleasure center of the brain is just overactive. So we can't just do it cognitively. I'm not saying the cognitive doesn't work because there's plenty of data to show that it does, but why not include the part of the brain that's actively involved in the problem? Mm. So, uh, and we haven't, I haven't, you know, talked about like what, what you do for a living. So, so maybe that's a good, a good time to come in and, uh, and, and, um, you know, describe your, your journey. So you, you start the book by talking about a, a very exciting story of, of you doing hypnosis under pressure. You tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are, what your background is, and how you came to, to this understanding. At a very early age, in, and when I say early, I say 13 is what it was, I became fascinated by hypnosis and how to use hypnosis to affect the body to affect physical change. And so by the time I was in college, I knew I wanted to develop an expertise in hypnosis and basically come out of school and use it to change health. And, and that's exactly what I did. I, I, I came out of school and eventually found myself at a large hospital out here on the West Coast called Cedar sinai Medical Center. And then eventually uh, UCLA, where I became a professor of, of medicine. And I, I started you know, one of the earliest clinical programs in the country where we would use hypnosis, even forms of meditation, visualization, on hospital patients and patients in coming through the system with physical problems, whether it was heart disease, cancer, migraine headaches, asthma, uh, colitis, uh, and it's so much more. And could we use these techniques to truly change their health? And that became a huge focus of my life. And uh, as I got my professorship at UCLA, then I began doing a lot more work in this area of, you know, studying it. And, you know, what happens when we do this? How does it change you know, the immune system, how does it change the biochemistry of the body? So I began researching it and then teaching it. And, and presently, I teach medical students how to make decision-making under pressure. And also part of my job is to train athletes, the UCLA athletic teams, so they perform well under pressure in competition. And I also teach this whole mind-body area in the medical school, too, teaching medical students to understand how they can mobilize other parts of the patient's brains to enhance their, their healing response and how to use placebo in a positive way, how to talk to patients, how to know if it's the mind causing the problem or it's the body causing the problem. So this has been the main focus of my life. And so what I, when I wrote this book, I was initially supposed to write a book on habits, 
That was what I was contracted to do. But I realized that when I was thinking about doing that, that I, I realized that what I was doing all these years when I was reconditioning the immune system or retraining people to respond to stress differently or taking people's pain away or helping them sleep better or stop their anxiety, what I was really doing all these years was changing their ability to manage fear. In other words, building up their hardiness under stress and emotional, physical and emotional conditions. So I thought, no, what I really need to write about is to help people manage fear better and make them much more resilient and hardy. That's all I got here. Hmm. So can you, know, you, you wrote a, a essentially a self-help book. And so are, is, is it possible for people to start doing this work on their own without a hypnotherapist? Or how, how would you advise people? Because, you know, I'm certainly listening to this and point, you know, and thinking of dozens of cases where I'm, quote, guilty, you know, where I sit down to have a meal and I need to have a book with me. I can't just sit and eat the food or you know, these little things that are contributing to adjutants. How would somebody know if they should get clinical hypnotherapy or if there are things they can start doing on their own? There really are so many things we can do on our own without a professional. Uh, and it starts by, okay, if learning to manage discomfort is the key and therefore teaching that old part of our brain that discomfort isn't a threat. What we want to do then is basically expose ourselves to increasing levels of discomfort and retraining ourselves. And when I say increasing levels of discomfort, I'm, I'm not talking about jumping out of airplanes or, you know, w walking down a, a dark alley and in, a, in Skid Row. I'm just talking about some very basic things. And like, you know, you just said something there very interesting. It's true, you know, we've become so needing so much stimulation that sometimes food alone isn't enough, that we have to read a book or we have to have the TV on or we have to be doing multiple events at the same time because we're so addicted to stimulation. So what we do is take those parts of our life that we're pretty dependent on and pull them out. For example, okay, let's say use your wonderful example. We say, okay, you know what? One, we're, I'm going to try eating without any other stimulation, including talking to someone, watching TV, or even listening to music. Or you could say, hey, you know what? I'm used to eating at 6 o'clock change it. Wait another hour and just feel the discomfort and train yourself, hey, I can do this. I can be uncomfortable and nothing bad will happen. And the idea is to keep elevating your level of discomfort. Other ways to do it. Simple way, like how much have we become dependent on our cell phones? You know, whether it's for Google or for directions, what if you left it at home? You, you, without it, I mean, or you took time off from being on the, on the grid, that would be uncomfortable. Or you could tweak it even more. Anything that creates a vulnerability 
builds the discomfort muscle. And one of the best ways to do it is to put us in situations where we feel a vulnerability around other people. Because remember, we also learn to survive based on our connection to other people because strength in numbers increased our survival chances. So we are a social animal, which means basically we don't want to be rejected. We don't want to feel judgment. We don't want to feel ostracized. So raising levels of discomfort, we can, let's say you're uncomfortable with public speaking. Start doing public speaking. Let's say the prospect of getting up and singing in front of people would be uncomfortable. Well, what about dancing? What if you're really uncomfortable about dancing? Anything that pushes that button will build up the discomfort muscle. And you brought up the exercise component. Absolutely. How often, like if we're running or doing an exercise, and we say, okay, there's the finish line, and that's where I'm going to stop, but then we find ourselves stopping long before the finish line. What if we say, hey, you know what? We're not stopping at the finish line. We're going to go beyond it. Anything that increases our level of discomfort is wonderful. Mm -hmm. So in that case, it feels like this is a place where the decision is being made by our rational brain, the neocortex, to override the limbic brain, to say, you know, limbic brain is thinking we're going to die. We have to stop right now. We have to swerve and go to Dunkin' Donuts. But here's the rational brain saying we're going to keep going. How, can, how come the rational brain has a chance of winning that argument? It's actually not so much the, the cognitive brain or the neocortex or frontal lobe that's actually creating the result. There, there's this uh, part of the brain, it sort of straddles the old brain and the new brain called the insular cortex. And what its, its function is, it has multiple functions, but one of its functions is to interpret physical sensation in the body and attribute meaning to it. So if I'm feeling this sensation here, that just means I'm safe. Or, or this sensation means like, oh, danger, red alert. And we want this insular cortex, essentially, to learn to interpret this physical discomfort or emotional discomfort as something that's not a threat. So it's actually not so cognitive because, let's say, for example, we are, you know, saying, oh, okay, I'm not going to eat breakfast and I'm not going to eat lunch. And so one part of us will be saying, oh, you know what, um, I'm okay, I'm fine. We're trying to talk ourselves into being okay. But then other thoughts will come up and say, oh, no, this is really bad. This is uncomfortable. I don't want to feel this. I better eat. So we have even the cortex fighting itself out. So we really want to go down still to the primitive area and putting in this discomfort and letting this other part of the brain just experience that nothing bad will happen. I mean, we all have learned early on that pain, you know, no pain, no gain. So we already have this thing in us that, okay, I guess some pain can be helpful. But we're not so good about that when it comes to emotional pain. We feel emotional pain, and we feel like we need to somehow manage it instantaneously. And 
So it is more than just a cognitive component. It really is going down to that other part of this insular cortex and limbic area and training it. And another way to think about this is, is that the sphere response, as we've been talking about, is overly magnified. It's almost like, a, I think the example I give in the book, it's like a rainbow, and the only thing that's represented in the rainbow is red. But when, let's just say we start bringing in other colors to the rainbow, blues, you know, magentas, teals, uh, purples, orange, yellows. Now that rainbow has a lot more color, and that red is now shrunken down. What we want to do is bring in other parts of the brain, not necessarily the the the, the frontal lobe part, but other parts of the brain that have nothing to do with fear. And so the fear response is now confined to the space that it deserves to be. And in that way, we change our discomfort reaction. Mm. And I believe you, you, that the term you use for that is duality, the, the ability yeah. to both feel the pain and feel that it's not the only reality. Yes, exactly, because it's overrepresented. This is a pain and, and fear response. But we are a creature that can function on multiple levels at all times. So like you and I are, are speaking, but we're having our own distracting thoughts simultaneously. You're probably aware of other things around you and other things that you might have to do later after this conversation. So this is going on all the time. And so what we want to do is build up our duality, and particularly the parts of us that are far bigger than the fear response. And there are other parts of us that literally may, can shrink the fear response. Right. And I'd, I'd love for you to tell the story about when you made a mistake in your in buying a, or renting an office space, and it turned out to be extremely distracting, <laughs> you know, when you're trying to do hypnosis, oh, and there's cars yeah. honking and traffic noises. Yeah, this is like a pivotal point in my early career. I, I had moved my office from uh, Sears, Sinai, to an office in Beverly Hills that was on a very busy street called Wilshire. It was a very nice office, and I thought, oh, this is wonderful. And here I have developed an, a practice based on things such as hypnosis. And here I am my first day, first couple hours, I'm doing hypnosis, and all I'm hearing is people slamming on the brakes, revving their cars up, radio really loud, and because people were stopped at a red light right next to my office. And I'm thinking, like, Mark, what were you thinking? Why would you take an office that's on one of the busiest streets in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills? And I thought, this is going to be a problem. But what I learned was that, wait a minute, if I can get people to relax and go into an altered state and feel comfortable in these horrible conditions that would otherwise seem obstructive to it, then what I've done is made that altered state, relaxation, safety, comfortable feeling far more hardy to the real world. Because... The real world is saturated with distractions and not quiet and peaceful and in some beautiful place. So if we can come to experience comfort in non-conducive conditions, 
therefore a duality, two things going on at the same time, then we are making ourselves far more hardy and resilient to the real world. Great. So in, in the, the last section of the book, you have a chapter of 15 uh, strategies, and then there's an, another chapter that really has some very, very interesting and deep exercises in it. And I think, the, the, you know, the heart, I don't want to go into all those. I think everyone should buy this book. Um, but I do, I do want to cover before we say goodbye, the, uh, the shown breathing technique, which is kind of the center of a lot of these exercises. Tell me what, what it is, what is the shown breathing technique? How is it different from other forms of conscious breathing and what can it do? Yes, uh, this breathing technique is something I actually had to develop early on in my career, like around 1983-84, because the hospital, Cedars-Sinai, would not allow me to do hypnosis on the medical wards, because at those times it was seen as like a pretty flaky, unscientific approach. So I put myself in the lab, the biofeedback lab, and wanted to develop a technique that would expediently shift the body into a relaxed state. And I was mercenary. I took from here, took from there, borrowed from here, and created a technique that was really expedient, that rapidly lowered blood pressure and rapidly lowered the heartbeat and quickly put people into a state of relaxation. And then I published it and wrote about it, and, and now it's used in a lot of different contexts. And essentially what it is is a very metered inhale, but not necessarily a deep diaphragmatic breath, but an inhale that you hold for very briefly, maybe a second, followed by four exhales that have no inhale between them. They're partial exhales with a sound like this, a shush sound. And I experimented with all sorts of sounds, all sorts of different timing and pacing, and I found out that by doing this, it created this big physical shift. And by the way, if your listeners want uh, a copy, I actually have an audio file how to do that. I, I, I'm happy to give it away for free. They just have to go onto my website and, uh, or email me uh, asking for it, and I'm happy to send it to them. Uh, but this, this technique, in a, in a matter of 45 to, to 50 seconds, can create a very dramatic shift in your physiology. And I've, I've been trying it, and, and I do feel that, it, you know, I don't exactly know why it works. I think the sh sound might be very, like, hardwired, like a mother comforting a child. Yeah, um, exactly. But it's, so, I, so and your, your website is uh, markshone.com, right? Just for people who are listening who don't have a pen handy. So it's M-A-R-C. S-C-H-O-E-N.com. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And that's the simple way they can email me from there if they like. And and then I'm, I'm happy to send it their way. And you're right. You know, there's a lot of parts to it that create the result. You know, one is, you know, we know that breathing alone shifts our physiology. But so does sound. And, you know, there are some theories why the sound like or ocean or water sound is because, you know, when we were in the womb, that's what it sounds like to a baby. But my thought is that, quite honestly, we all came from the ocean. And so our ancient wiring hmm. is that water is part of life. And anything that kind of creates that sound 
has an ancient, very primitive effect on us to, to make us calm. And then also, the power in breathing is controlling the exhale. And as we control the exhale, that's far more powerful on our physiology than taking an inhale. And so there are many different parts to it that create the result. Mm. That's awesome. So I'm going to uh, let you go. We're at the, the end of our uh, promised hour. But for, so just a quick question. Do you work with people in, in clinical practice in California? Do you also do uh, distance work via phone or Skype, or do people have to come, come see you? No, you know, it is possible to do Skype. It is possible to do this with groups of people. Yes, all of the above is possible. Great. So if people want to find out more, uh, where, should they, where should they go to learn more from you? Well, you know, they certainly go into my website. We'll give a, a very, you know, thorough background of who I am, and it'll allow people to kind of see if this is something that's of interest to them. And if they you know, have an interest and certainly want to learn more, then they can very easily uh, email me from my website, or I can, I'm happy to give my, my email uh, address to, which is my name, PhD with the number two after it at gmail.com. So Mark Schoen, PhD two at gmail.com. Okay, great. And for folks who are driving and can't write this down, if you go to uh, the show notes for this episode, go to plantyourself.com and just do a search for survival. This, this will be probably the first one that comes up and uh, all, all those links will be in the show notes. So, Dr. Mark Schoen, this the book is amazing. It's changed my life for the better, and it's already changing the lives of my clients for the better because it's it's such an important missing piece, and it turns out to be so easy to access once you understand um, the the formulation. So, I want to thank you so much for writing it and for all your work and for agreeing to uh, be on this conversation. Thank you very much for your interest and your willingness to put it out there for other people. I, I'm very appreciative of that. So thank you very much. All right. Be well. Okay. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on over 140 archived episodes and read the show notes over at plantyourself.com. If you subscribe to the podcast but not the email newsletter, please consider going to plantyourself.com and signing up. In addition to notification about each new podcast episode, I include links to articles and a link to my weekly TV show, Triangle Be Well, and my grammar, of course, is way better in writing. Big thanks to the people who make this show possible, the podcast patrons, the Plant Yourself podcast patrons, Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Elizabeth Clifton, Amy Good, and this week for non-material support, for uh, advice on audio, my audio guru, Amnon Nissan of Nissan Communications. Thank you all for your generous support. If you would like to support the show, you can do it in a bunch of ways. You can share this and other episodes on social media. You can write a review of the show on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can become a patron yourself by pledging a one-time amount or ongoing donation to the podcast. And you can do that over at plantyourself.com. Tonight, Tuesday, March 29th, 2016, I'm holding a 
coaching call, a uh, teleseminar line, and it's the topic is how to change when you have no support. So if your children, if your significant other, if your co-workers, if your boss, if your environment all seem to be conspiring against you as you try to make lifestyle improvements, then this will be a very helpful call. You can get the information on how to dial in over at trianglebewell.com and up at the top, click on events, and this will be the event at the very top that'll have the call-in number and the access code. I'd love for you to show up with questions, and I will answer as many of them as I can in the hour. So in garden news, tons of stuff going on right now. We've got the seedlings in the little greenhouse that some of them need to be transplanted. They're becoming root-bound. We're not sure if we're going to have another frost, so we're debating whether to put them right into the garden or put them into bigger pots. We've got our friend Joe over in the side yard doing some stump grinding so we can put in another shed to house Francesca, our little two-wheel tractor from Italy. And last week, my wife Mia made a fabulous green soup from a whole bunch of greens that overwintered in the garden. And it was just amazing to see this stuff. It kind of looked so straggly and it was so cold and we kept covering up to see it just coming back to life and putting out new leaves and really nourishing us. This, this green soup was just maybe pounds and pounds of these vegetables cooked down in a broth with some herbs and spices and then uh, zhuzhed in the, uh, in the blender. So I hope that you too this week get nourished by things that are green and growing and delicious. And as always, be well, my friends. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kinoski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes of Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gil Lassert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carl Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Nolly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, D.N. Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell. Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divich, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Lehman, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Cartz, Dean Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, 
Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parin Ganchik, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoraska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, and Sarah Johnson for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.